Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh, and this is episode 32. And if you're new to the Union, the Union is all about God's design for sexuality, relationships, identity, marriage. And uh, we just really do believe that God's design is actually a good design and is leads us to life and peace when we step into it and we experience it. And if you are a return visitor to the Union Podcast, uh, we would love it if you would comment, subscribe and share the podcast and help to get this message out to maybe some of your friends or some of the people in your circle um, who would benefit from uh, hearing more about God's design for all these areas. Today, Bonnie and I get to sit down with Sheila Ray Gregoire, and uh, she is a podcaster, she is a blogger, and she is an author. And um, she's written a book called The Great Sex Rescue, which released on March 2nd. And um, we just sit down today and we talk about how a lot of times the messages that we pick up within Christian culture around sexuality um, are not just not even not biblical in some ways, but are actually really damaging uh, to marriages, to relationships um, when we don't see sex clearly from the Bible. And Sheila's done a, some amazing research and has unpacked some very interesting information. And I know that you're going to benefit from it. But before we jump into the podcast today, I am so excited to tell you that we have launched our first e-course at the Union called The Journey Home. And it is all about discovering God's design for these areas of sexuality, identity. And uh, we are really excited about it. So you can look in the show notes. We are going to include a link uh, to our e-course, but also all the information for Sheila that you can stay in touch with her and uh, and pick up your copy of her new book, uh, The Great Sex Rescue. So without any further ado, Let's jump into our conversation with Sheila. You're listening to The Union Podcast. The Union exists to bring biblical confidence and clarity to the topics of relationships and sexuality. On this podcast, we unpack the damaging effects of modern sex culture and discuss how to heal from the past and enrich your relationships. Here are your hosts, Brian and Bonnie Pugh. All right, everybody. Sheila Ray Gregoire, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you are a author, blogger, you have a podcast, a website, which I love the title, which is uh, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. Now, that's, that's, that's a, <laughs> such a great title. Can you tell us a little bit about the vision and mission that you have through these outlets? Yeah, well, I started blogging way back in 2008. And so my blog name was actually my first book to love, honor, and vacuum when you feel more like a maid than a wife and a mother. Right. And when I started blogging, I really was talking about like parenting and housework and marriage, just the typical mommy blog stuff. And then over the years, I started talking more and more about sex and my traffic increased. So it's like, who knew people wanted to talk about sex, right? (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah. (laughs) And I gradually transformed more of the sex arena. So, um, and that's what I've been doing for the last probably eight years. The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex was out in 2012. And amazing. That's just what we talk day in and day out. (laughs) So I read on your website that it says you've been married for 29 years and 24 of them have been happy. (laughs) What, what -hmm. is the craziest thing that you fought about with your husband? What is it? Or maybe not the craziest thing. What is the silliest thing that you fought about with your husband? Oh gosh. Okay. You know what directions were so bad in the car? Like when he's driving, I remember once we were trying to go through Montreal and this was in before GPSs. So I had the map out and I was like, go, go straight. 
but I'm looking and I have no concept of up, down, east, west, north, south kind of thing. And I'm like, you just, you just go up, you just go up. Cause on the map, you know, you go up and he's like, okay, do I go straight or do I turn? And I'm like, I think you go straight. And he said, well, do you think, or do you know? And I said, <laughs> I think I know, which was not really helpful. And, and we just, we just do not drive well together. It's been 29 years and I'm just so grateful for the GPS, but I just don't say a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question. This is a debate. If you want somebody to turn off mm -hmm. at the next ex exit, would you say mm -hmm. the one after this one? Like when when what does the next exit mean to you? Does it mean the very next one or the one after this one coming up? Yeah, the very I, next I think one. Is it, the very next one. That's what I, I would think, think so, too. Yeah. I think this is a I don't know. What would you say? I think to me, I don't, I don't have any like rhyme or reason why, but the next exit <laughs> seems not this one, but the next one, <laughs> this exit is this exit. <laughs> the next one is the one after it. I, I can imagine that there are couples everywhere who would yeah. be relating to that situation. We could do a conference just on that. <laughs> this or next, this or next, you know, anyways. Awesome. Wow. Now you've also written a book called 31 days to great sex. Now it's now I, I think I heard when, when you were listening to another interview with you, you're very clear to say that it's not 31 days of great sex, but it's a guide to 31 days of great sex to get there. Yeah. To yeah. Get there. Two great sex. Yes. Not of, you don't need to have sex for 31 days straight. Nobody needs to do that. But so a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the um, exercises are on how to be more affectionate, how to talk about your baggage, you know, how to flirt more, all that so kind of good. thing. And then of course, how to spice things up and things like that too. Hey, I love it. So good. That's awesome. Now your newest book, which releases on March 2nd, uh, the great sex rescue is um, really practical in so many ways, but is really hard hitting in a lot of other ways um, as we start to unearth some uh, some lies and some different perspectives that have snuck in that are just not healthy. Can you tell us what led you on that path to to start writing that book? Yeah. So like I said, for eight years, I've been talking about sex day in and day out, sex, sex, sex. And I've been putting out blog posts and books and podcasts with all kinds of great content. And it seemed like no matter what I said, people still had all the same issues. Hmm. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we started reading, my team and I started reading some of the best-selling evangelical books about sex and marriage. And we, we started thinking, I wonder if the problem is that our foundation is rotten hmm. and there's stuff that we're believing, which is stopping us from experiencing the way that we think God intended. And so we decided that we would just do the biggest survey that's ever been done <laughs> of Christian women. And we would look at whether there are certain evangelical teachings not not teachings from the Bible, not what I would call Christian teachings. So I'm not saying that that God hurts us, but mm -hmm. that there's certain teachings that there that are prevalent in the evangelical church that are actually causing women's marital and sexual satisfaction to go down. So that sounds very academic, but the book is actually quite fun, I think. It's filled with lots of great numbers, lots of pretty charts, amazing stories, and hopefully lots of hope of how we can get on the other side and debunk and get rid of a lot of this stuff that's holding us back. Oh, it's so good. It's like the extra, extra biblical teachings that kind of sneak in these little things that yes. sneak in over the years, right? <laughs> I appreciate the way you said that, that it's not God's, it's not God's word that is creating trouble. It's our, mm -hmm. it's our messed up interpretations or when our, maybe even our own, um, like 
cultural mindsets come and start to mix in with the words of God. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe people are manipulating what scripture says to get them what they want. That is where things can get pretty messy. Um, Yeah. Reading, you know, reading what I have out of the great sex rescue, that book that's releasing soon, I was just blown away um, by the statistics, but then also by the excerpts and the, you know, the responses that you were getting from um, women who had been visiting your website and responding to your questions and so many of the painful experiences that they, they went through not only before marriage, but after marriage where Mm -hmm. they were trying their best to honor their husbands or to, Mm -hmm. you know, follow these, these, like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, but it was actually just leading to disunity in their marriage or leading Mm -hmm. to literal pain, um, and frustration, uh, in the bedroom. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely, a difficult conversation to have, you know, with all these damaging messages. Um, I like what you said about the essential to get down to that foundation and make sure that that gets healed, that gets fixed so that um, Mm -hmm. moving forward, there can be hope for marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sheila, in a lot of your study, what, where would you say like this all kind of pointed back to, like, if we think about the modern church or in the last maybe 20, 30 years, how did we end up with this foundation that's decaying? Like in your study and your research, what did you find? Um, a lot of the ideas that really hurt people, the, the essential problem is that it prioritizes his entitlement to sex and his experience of sex over hers. Hmm. And that's just not biblical. Um, like I remember I was 13 years old. And I'm sitting in a wooden pew beside all my junior high friends in church. And the pastor opens the Bible to Genesis chapter four. And he reads, you know, and Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived unto them a son. And of course, we all start laughing and the, the pew starts shaking. And my mother gives me that look, right? Like, yes. just stop. But we couldn't help it because that's hilarious. Like Adam knew his wife as if God was embarrassed of using the real word or something. But, <laughs> right. you know, as I got older and I looked into that, it's really interesting because the word there is the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, oh God. Mm. And I believe that the reason that God used the word in Genesis 4 was tell us that sex is more than physical. Come on. It's supposed to be a deep knowing, a deep intimacy. And that's what's often missing. Like if I were to ask you guys, okay, and I'm not going to do this because I'm not gross and I'm not creepy. But if I were to ask you guys, did you have sex last night? All right. Now, chances are you're picturing something very specific in your head right? Like you think what I'm asking you is, did he, you know, put that into there and move around until he climax? Like you think that's what I'm asking because that's how we tend to define sex. But what if that's not the correct definition? You know, Mm -hmm. because if you think about it, if we define it that way, then she could be lying there counting ceiling tiles or making a grocery list in her head or whatever. She could be doing absolutely nothing. Her experience isn't even registering in our normal definition of sex. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you add when you add um, the orgasm gap to that. So we have a 43 point orgasm gap. Okay, so um, we we just finished surveying men. So we didn't survey men before that book came out, but we have just since surveyed men. And 92% of Christian men reach orgasm almost always or always during a sexual encounter, but 49% of women do. Hmm. So we have a 43-point orgasm gap. (laughs) And 
So if we talk about sex as only about intercourse, we're already missing <laughs> her yeah, experience. Absolutely. And, and, and so when, and, and what I find happens a lot in the church is that our solution to marriage problems is to tell women to have more sex. You know, like if you have more sex, he'll stop watching porn. If you feel distant from your husband, have more sex. But what's not talked about is he needs to make sure that's good for her. Mm. <laughs> you know, like that 43 yeah. point orgasm gap, her orgasm is not essential. All that's essential is intercourse. And that's a problem. Because right. we're seeing sex as something which is primarily from his point of view. And something that I think, you know, you mentioned in the book, which I think is that you're, what you're not saying is that orgasm is the goal, but you're saying taking the time to know each other, mm -hmm. taking the time to serve each mm -hmm. other is ultimately the goal. And when mm -hmm. men will do that, her, her, um, her satisfaction with what happens during sex is going to go up. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, I don't think orgasm should ever be the absolute ultimate goal, but I think that we should be aiming for her to feel sexual pleasure. She is fully capable Absolutely. of it. She has a body part whose only purpose is sexual pleasure. Right. And, you know, a lot of couples never figure out her orgasm piece because you start out sex, you know, you get married, you have sex. It doesn't feel very good for her. She doesn't know what to say because- yeah. You know, he says, well, what do you want me to do? And she has no clue because mm -hmm. she doesn't know what feels good. And right. so they just figure, well, I guess you just don't like sex. Hmm. And she feels broken right. because when we talk about sex is only intercourse. And then if intercourse doesn't feel very good for her, she figures I'm broken. Hmm. And what we forget is that the majority of women do not reach orgasm through intercourse alone. Of the women who do reach orgasm, you know, only about 30% reach orgasm through intercourse alone. Most need other things. And most women find other methods far more reliable. But, you know, we don't tell men, you need to make sure she feels pleasure. We tell women instead, you just need to have a lot of sex. Right. And if we define sex as intercourse where he climaxes, then she's just miss like she's already being deprived. And I think that that links into this cultural problem where a woman is objectified. She turns into a body part mm -hmm. to meet someone's need instead mm -hmm. of her being like a multidimensional entity of her own who has feelings and desires mm -hmm. and shows up as a whole person. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for instance, you know, um, Emerson Eggrich in Love and Respect said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Mm -hmm. And that's really typical of our evangelical books is that idea that sex is a man's need. It's not a woman's need. Mm -hmm. um, and so she has to provide sex so that she meets his need. Um, but that idea, which we called in the book, we called it the obligation sex idea that she must have sex right. is highly correlated with lower orgasm rates. But most importantly, it's one of the things which is the most implicated in higher rates of sexual pain among women. Mm -hmm. And most people don't realize this, but Christian women have twice the rate of sexual pain as a general population. Wow. Like, yeah, this is this is a big issue. Yeah. Um, and and yet, you know, when we went on focus on the family's website, the Gospel Coalition website, Desiring God, all of them had articles on erectile dysfunction. None of them talked about vaginismus or postpartum pain. Could you, for so those just not yeah. talked about, 
For for those who are listening, could you explain those last two terms so we understand? You yes. said that. So vaginismus. Vaginismus is, it's also called, okay, well, dyspareunia is the medical term for any kind of sexual pain in women. Okay. Vaginismus is, is the most common form, and it's when the muscles of the vaginal wall contract. So, and it's involuntary, but they just really tense up and she can't relax, which makes penetration very painful or else mm-hmm. impossible. Um, and that, and a lot of women experience that like uh, up to 20, I think, I think the number was 22% of Christian women have experienced that, um, 7% to the point that penetration is difficult or impossible. So 22% mm-hmm. have had real pain and 7% have not been able to have penetration. Right mm-hmm. now in, in your study, like where, what did you see as correlating facts that led to that? Like, what were the specifics that led to those, um, those conditions? There's two really. The biggest we talked about in the book is this obligation sex message. When you make sex into something which she owes him, Hmm. then sex is no longer a knowing, it's an owing. And that's a big difference. Because if sex is supposed to be a knowing, it means that both of you matter. It means that we are bringing ourselves to the bed. You know, we're both being extremely vulnerable. We're both being authentic. We're both totally and completely real before each other, which means that we matter. We're knowing each other. But if sex is something that she has to do, no matter how she feels because of right. his great need, then it it's not that it's a knowing. It actually erases her as a person. Hmm. And that's why um, the obligation sex message has virtually the same statistical effect on sexual pain as past abuse does. Wow. Whoa. So, so women's bodies actually interpret this obligation sex message as something which is traumatic. Mm-hmm. I believe it. And, and yet it is throughout our resources. People will quote, you know, first Corinthians seven, three to five, which says, do not deprive each other. Right. And they'll say, so women, you can't deprive him. You must meet his needs. You are not allowed to say no, except for prayer and fasting, mm-hmm. but that's not what those verses mean. No, exactly. You know, those, Mm-hmm. Those verses are about complete mutuality. Mm-hmm. Everything which is given to the husband is also given to the wife. And again, if we remember that sex is not one-sided intercourse, sex is something which is mutual, intimate, and pleasurable. Right. Mm-hmm. So if he, it, it, you know, if sex has become one-sided intercourse where he doesn't pay any attention to her, that is not a biblical sex life. You know, and it's okay for her to speak up and say, I am no longer willing to be used. I believe that Jesus created us for life and to have it abundantly. Mm -hmm. And I believe we're created for passion and for mutuality, but that's not what's happening in the bedroom. And until we're, we're, you're willing to work on that with me, I am no longer willing to be used. That's, that's so good. That's so good. I think something that comes to mind too, and and that's important to, to put in kind of the context of that. Uh, first Corinthians seven verse is like the, the Greek culture that, that Paul was speaking to, because essentially men in Greek culture, you had zero boundaries around, around sexuality, yeah. yet women had, you were, you needed to be faithful to your husband, but really your husband could be mm-hmm. sexual with anything. So what Paul's actually yeah. doing is saying, men, you can't just have any, you know, any, um, you can't have these desires without boundaries that your body is actually not mm-hmm your own and is meant to serve your wife. And, and so I think that's so important, um, you know, to put in the context, because we can read those things 
and put our own slant on it. But we need to remember who Paul was speaking to when he wrote that. So that would have been revolutionary yeah, for them to consider that yeah. the man was devoted to his wife or called to be devoted to his wife mm-hmm. as she was to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because in those days, husbands had complete authority over the wife's body too. Like it was not illegal to murder your wife. It's insane. And yeah. so it, you know, so to give, to give her authority over his body, that was totally revolutionary. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. so true. It's remarkable. I, I want to back up just a little bit. Cause you had said that, you know, you quoted um, the love and respect book and saying that, you know, um, speaking to, speaking to the, to the wives, the author was saying that, you know, it's most likely that your husband has a desire that you don't have. And when, when I read that, it actually, reminded me because like I didn't grow up in the church. I came to to Christ in grade 12 in 2003. And mm-hmm. um and what's really interesting is that's actually like a worldly cultural thought. At least that was for what it was mm-hmm. for me growing up is that if if a if a girl in high school has any sort of sexual appetite that's being acted upon, she was called a slut or she was called a whore. Right. right. Yet if right. as a, as a young man, if I acted upon those desires or pursued that, that kind of sexual conquest, it was like this noble thing. And, and I don't know where, like how it got into culture, but it was so surprising to me to now to see my upbringing and my experience before Christ now coming into the church. And it's kind of the same message, which is really crazy. Yeah. It says like it? men, mm-hmm. your desires, like that is God given, but as a woman, you probably don't you're probably not going to have a need. You're not going to have yeah. a desire. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had friends over the years say, I feel like my sex drive is so high that I've wondered if something was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. Like I hate yeah. that it, being a sexual yeah. being or having desires would make a woman feel like something, yeah, that something's broken with them, you know? Yeah. My, um, okay. Let me tell you a story. My, my great grandfather was five foot five. My great grandmother was five foot 11. Hmm. And so she was a lot taller than him and their children, their sons and everything were, were very, very tall because of their mother, not because of their father, but nobody was knocking on their door saying, can we study you for a science experiment? Cause it's impossible for a woman to be taller than a man, right? Because we all know that height exists on a bell curve. Yes. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. For those of you who remember your high school lessons of bell curves, like most of us, most people are somewhere in the middle. And then as the bell curve gets, gets smaller on either end, you have fewer and fewer people, but there are people there. The thing about libido for men and women is that you've got overlapping bell curves. So men's bell curve, yes, it is higher than women's, but there's a lot of with a higher libido than men. And the difference in men's libido, if you look at the at the difference between, you know, the lower libido and the higher libido, the two standard deviations in men's libido, the difference between men is greater than the difference of the average man and the average woman. Hmm. Whoa. So let me explain that just a, again. Okay, here yeah. I'm, I'm going to try this again because this is a really important concept to understand. There is more difference within 90, what's two standard deviations? Is that 95%? Yeah, there's more difference within the 95% of men and the 95% of women than there is between the average man and the average woman. So when we talk about men being like this and women being like this, we are missing the majority of the conversation. Wow. And and yet that is how the majority of books talk about libido. They talk about how men have libido and women don't. And that's not true. 
So in our, in our studies, about 60% of marriages do have men with a higher libido, hmm. but in 20% it's shared. And in 20%, she has the higher libido and wow. none of those things is wrong. No, like, it's not like you're, it's not like one is holier than the other, or one is more correct, or one is more natural. We all just exist on spectrum and we're all individuals and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that puts all the more onus on, well, maybe I'll, I'll say something else before I say that, because again, I think it's the same message that the, the world is saying um, in the sense that we're asking women based on, on, on like that idea that, that a man's libido is higher than a woman's, we're now putting this pressure on women to just be like men, which is the same culture. Mm -hmm. This is the same message of the world right now, instead of validating the fact that women might be different yet, like you even say, like there's, there's percentages of women who might have a higher libido, but even in how they get to orgasm, how they get to climax is completely different. And the needs that they have would be completely different that mm -hmm. they might have a higher mm -hmm. relational need and a, and a need for safety and, um, and permanence and commitment that allow their heart to open up, to be, to, ex to experience this area of life, um, as it's meant to. Um, but we, we can't fall into that same trap where we're just calling women to like, Hey, why don't you, why can't you just love sex as much as men do, which is like completely misguided. I think. Yeah. And that's what often happens. You see the, the cure for everything in the bedroom, according to most of our evangelical books is frequency, just have more sex. But what we found is that frequency is a very poor measure of people's sex lives. And when frequency is low, the problem is not libido. Hmm. Like when sex so is not happening, it's like libido is like a thermometer. It measures what's happening in your marriage. It's not like a thermostat where you can just right. turn it up and everything will be better. Right. So if she's not having sex, it's probably because <laughs> she believes some really bad messages that have totally turned her off. Um, she doesn't feel close to him. So there's, there's not an emotional connection. Yes. Sex has been depersonalized. So yeah. he treats her very in, in a bad way in bed. So it's not about intimacy. It's just about using her, you know, any of those things are going to decrease frequency. And so instead of attacking frequency, we need to ask what's the underlying thing that's going on here. Mm -hmm. And how can we make sure that in the bedroom, you guys love each other and you feel intimate and you feel honored and you feel like we're each preserving this dignity. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, yeah. these are the things that really get us back to Christ. Yeah. You know, I, I look back to when we got married in 2007 and, you know, like, it's so funny that everybody starts to like, Hey, it's a wedding night, huh? Like all this stuff and like all the pressure starting to come. And it's like, by the time we got to the end of that day, that was like a really long day for us. By the time we ended up back at the hotel, like we got a flight for our honeymoon the next day. And it's like, we were both just exhausted. And I remember mm -hmm. this is pretty, this is pretty real conversation you're having now. So like, I remember Bonnie and I talking and I think you were almost feeling like, oh, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. And I said, like, here's, here's the reality is like, I'm not, I'm not a caged animal that is all of a sudden going to get set loose tonight. But, and, and I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but well, maybe. I think it was even before it was before the wedding day. Oh, was where it? I, well, cause we determined not to kiss until our wedding day. That was kind of his idea. And I thought, 
that's going to be a big day. <laughs> you know, that's a little, yeah. that's a lot. Um, and that's when you said, I'm not a caged animal. Like, yeah. it's not like, okay, now we have a ring. I put a ring on it and now I just get what I want. Like, and I just so appreciated you saying like, we mm-hmm. have a life to explore this. Like yeah. there's no pressure, you know? And so even though it was a long day, mm-hmm. it, it freed me up to be able to, um, feel excited for that night yeah. and to, you know, be able to have some fun. Yeah. And I think that that's where, mm-hmm. you know, we sell people like as, as, you know, Christian leaders, like, I think we sell the people that we're leading so short when we say that, like, it better be this huge experience on the honeymoon instead of like, this is going to be a journey that you guys are going to walk together. You're going to know each other more. You're going to learn to serve one Mm -hmm. another. You're going to learn to communicate. Um, You're going to learn to uh, all these other things that are even outside of the bedroom. You're going to cultivate those characteristics in order so that this area is beautiful and thriving and a blessing in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so much of that too, I think is, is, getting rid of a lot of our preconceived notions about sex and expectations about sex. Like sex is not going to cure sexual sin. A lot of people think, well, once Mm -hmm. I get married, I won't use porn anymore because now I'll have an outlet. Doesn't work that way. No, you know, um, Mm -hmm. getting married does not cure a porn addiction. And in fact, it can make it worse. (laughs) Um, And, and when women feel like, like when women feel like, um, I have to have sex to keep them from porn, which again is what a lot of our resources tell us. Like in sheet music, Kevin Lehman actually tells women that on their periods, they should give their husbands hand jobs or oral sex to help him resist temptation during her period or her postpartum phase, which I find very problematic to say the least. Um, <laughs> but when women feel like they have to do these things to keep him from watching porn, then women's ability to get aroused at all plummets, Mm -hmm. their ability to orgasm plummets, their trust in their husband plummets. Like this robs, this robs her of the ability to enjoy sex because she feels like she's a substitute. She -hmm. feels like she's just a receptacle and not a person. So we have to start talking about this better. Yeah. I love that in your book, you say this, this statement, like your spouse is not your methadone, you know, and like Mm -hmm. based on this concept that sex and marriage is not going to replace a lust issue. It's not going to replace a porn addiction. Um, that I -hmm. think it would also, you know, if a woman has that in their mind, then they go into the bedroom feeling a sense of like that they're being compared with what has been seen on a screen. Mm-hmm. And right there, she's going to yeah. just be riddled with insecurity because we all know that the like what happens on a screen has been like it's been modified. It's not an accurate view of what yeah. sex actually is. But she turns she feels like she has to be a performer now. No, that's exactly it. And the problematic thing like that methadone, that's not even our phrase. You know, every man's battle says that, yeah. um, you know, once he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him, which is a, so insulting on so many levels. But you know, methadone is something which addicts take as a substitute for what they really want. Wow. So, yeah. you know, you're telling, you're telling your wife, um, let him have sex with you so that you can satiate him enough so that he won't go after what he really wants. He'll settle for you. I, it's just, it's a terrible thing to say, but they said it twice. So they meant it. Um, But that, you know, I heard it on Focus on the Family as well on one of their news broadcasts that the reason that men watch porn is because they're not getting enough sex at home. Um, 
And these are the kinds of things which I quoted throughout my book, just to say, you know, we we grow up in this culture and when we're in church, we're often in this evangelical culture and we don't realize how many negative messages that we have and we need mm-hmm. to start combating them. We need to take these messages, hold them up to the light of Jesus and say, does Jesus intend women to be methadone or does Jesus say to men right. who have porn problems, you can be transformed. Yeah, You know, you can come with your woundedness, with your brokenness. You know, it, it's not about willpower. It's about admitting your brokenness, letting him wow. into your brokenness, but your wife can't do that for you. Yeah, that's, that's so good. You know, I, again, just thinking about my story because, you know, pornography and, and was, and just really broken relationships were a lot of my story uh, before I came to Christ. And so I kind of came in to the church uh, right when like that book, every man's battle was really getting traction, or at least it seemed like it was, I mm-hmm. had like zero church exposure before that. So, um, yeah. so like at first, even that idea that it's every man's battle, you know, at first kind of brought a sense of peace to my heart that I wasn't crazy or that I wasn't disgusting because I had, you know, a, a sin because mm-hmm. I was a sinner. It's just like, well, that's everybody's problem, but also it, it, at the same time, it very quickly got kind of concerning for me because I go like, so, so this is every, like every guy's doing this and it, and it really brought this sense of almost normalcy that it's like, or no, normality, I think yeah. it's the word, but like that this should just be something that's normal and expected. Oh, you're doing this. This is expected. And I think that's a horrible, that's a horrible uh, perspective on life and, and really as Christ followers that, that we're meant to, to turn away from known sin. We're meant to repent and to put to death the deeds of the flesh, um, by the spirit, like you're saying, not just in our own strength, but to, to, it's almost an attempt to just make it normal, um, and to normalize pornography instead of bringing a highlight to it, that it needs to be something that's over that needs to be overcome. Yeah, that idea that lust, uh, that all men struggle with lust and it's every man's battle. We measured that teaching as well. And that one was really interesting because that was one of the teachings which really hurt women's sexual satisfaction, even if they never believed it. Interesting. So most of the teachings only affected women if they believed it. This particular one affected women, even if they had only been taught it, but had, but said they didn't believe it. So just living in a culture where you're told that every man is going to struggle with lust. Mm-hmm. And every man is going to think about you that way. Right. Even if you never fully believe it, it impacts how we see sex and it just makes everything seem really dark. Yeah. And that's just not Jesus's message. Jesus's message is one of freedom. He says, no temptation has taken you except what is common to everybody. And God is faithful and he will provide a way to escape so that you can stand up under it. Like that's what Jesus says. And mm-hmm. I think that we, I think that we need to stop excusing stuff. That doesn't mean that if you are struggling with lust, you're an evil, horrible person, not at all. But when we tell people it's every man's battle, it's like, we're saying you're never going to win. No, you can win. There is freedom. There's healing. And the way that we win is not by taking our lust and transferring it to our wife, which is what every man's battle says, because basically what that's saying is, um, a man's sex drive is to objectify women. That is male sexuality is wow. to objectify women. And so the goal is to have him objectify only one woman. <sighs> no, preach. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, a man's sexuality is to truly know and be known. It's to be intimate. You yeah. know, it's to it's to serve and to be served. It's everything. It's to be completely transparent and vulnerable. That is what a man's sexuality is. It's also a woman's sexuality. That is what we were created for. Mm-hmm. And the way that you get over lust is by seeing a woman as a whole person and by seeing that that your your real desire is not to possess her but it's to be further known by god and to have further right. connection with people and we need to just take that away yeah i also think as a total side note i think the other big problem in the evangelical world is that we confuse sexual attraction with lust and we've made guys think they're lusting when they're not i think that's another big issue yeah um, they're just noticing beauty <laughs> but Exactly. And, right. you know, there's that's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, in our men's survey, interestingly, 75% of guys say they struggle with lust. But when we gave them all kinds of follow-up questions about whether they did lust or struggle with it in all these different situations, only about half of them did, which wow. means that half of the guys who think they struggle with lust actually don't. They're just simply sexually attracted to women. Wow. And yet Man. they're burdened by this thinking that they're sinning all the time. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, kind of what you're saying here. Um, something that a friend just recently said, she, you know, a different part of the country, but she was saying that a young woman was talking to her and she said, do you know that your husband, husband is the only man in our church that looks me in the eye and asks me how I am. Hmm. Hmm. And I, it just, again, it's so heartbreaking because I know what that's like, even as I have a lot of wonderful men around me, you know, fathers and brothers and friends and, you know, people who see me as a person, but I also know what it's like to just walk into a room and to realize these men, they see me as a threat. They see me as problem. They don't know how mm-hmm. to just see me as a, mm-hmm. as Bonnie, as a mm-hmm. person. And it's like, so either yeah. in the world there's, or like in with lust, there's this objectification. I turn you into something. Or in the resistance mm-hmm. of lust, you still turn me into something and you won't look at me or yes. you won't acknowledge my yes. existence. I'm a threat. And, and that is dehumanizing. And it's, I've, you know, it's something I've talked mm-hmm. with Brian about before. Like, that's hard for me. Yeah, I want to be friends. I want to have freedom to have like just friendship with, with guys, you know? Yeah. You know, in the Old Testament, um, the story of Hagar, I find so moving because for those of you who may remember that story, uh, God promised Abraham that he would have a son, but Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were really old and the son was not coming. And so Mm -hmm. Abraham took Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and had a child with her. And there was no evidence that that Hagar consented. How do you consent in a situation like that? So Mm -hmm. basically, it's a a situation of sexual abuse. And the son is born. And then he becomes a threat to the son that Sarah eventually has. And so they, they force Hagar to leave and Hagar takes Ishmael, her son into the desert and they're all alone and they're desperate. And she meets God there and God shows up in a big way. And Hagar is given the honor of being the first person in scripture to bestow a name upon God. And she calls God the God who sees me. Yeah. That is our God. Our God is a God who sees women, who sees sexual abuse victims, who sees how we have been treated, and he still loves us. Our God is a God who sits beside a Samaritan woman at a well when there's no one else around and just has an amazing conversation with her and reveals to her that he is the Messiah before he's even told his disciples. You know, our God is a God who sees 
women. Yeah. And it's time for our evangelical advice around sex to see women. Mm-hmm. Because until we see women, we will never have a deep knowing. And that's what's always going to be missing from our bedrooms. Wow. Sheila, this this conversation has just been amazing. I just want to say thank you so much uh, for your courage to go to go there, to dig into some hard topics <laughs> and to get to the get to the bottom of this, because I think there's so much more that is available um, for people than than what we've given them or than what the modern day messages are in this mm-hmm. area. Um, maybe just in closing, if if there's somebody who their their sex life and their marriage is exactly what is kind of what you found in your study, that there's brokenness, that there's coercion, that there's um, just really some unhealthy patterns that are there. What would you say the first steps for somebody is to get out of that pattern? Um, Of course, it depends how bad it is. I really encourage everyone to read The Great Sex Rescue because I think sometimes we just need to be validated and know we're not crazy and that we're not we're not strange and we're not broken and we're not misfits. There's other people in these situations, too. And we we really took care in the book to differentiate between, you know, what's just a difference of opinion or preference or just a problem to work through and what actually does become coercive and abusive. Um, Because I think a lot of people don't understand that marital rape is a thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So being able to recognize when things are coercive is so important. But I think most people, it's just blah. Like it was, you know, it was meant for more. You can't figure out why you can't get over that hump, why it's still so blah. And sometimes we just need to get rid of the junk that's in our heads Mm. and, and find the freedom that comes in learning how to be really vulnerable and authentic and let go of all this other stuff. Right. Well, Sheila, thank you so much. We are definitely, we'll put a link to the great, the great sex rescue uh, in our show notes. And when this is released, it'll be available. Um, So congratulations on the release of your new book. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we hope and pray that it, it reaches um, a huge group of people and brings transformation as, as I know that that's your heart. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for listening to the union podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.